Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Windham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Windham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's a major historic trilateral defense agreement between three countries. We talked to U.S. Congressman Joe Courtney of Connecticut's 2nd District about the new AUKUS submarine deal between the U.S., Australia and the United Kingdom. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It's been called an historic trilateral defence agreement as the US pens a deal with Australia and the United Kingdom to build Australia's first nuclear submarine fleet. It will cost billions of dollars and take many years to bring the new submarines online. And in the interim, the US will sell Virginia-class submarines to Australia that will be built by electric boat in Connecticut and Rhode Island to help kickstart Australia's entry into the world of nuclear propulsion. But what will it mean for the state of Connecticut, defence jobs here, and how could it affect submarine building for the US Navy? US Congressman, thanks ever so much for joining us. An incredible moment Monday the 13th of March 2023 for the United States as well as Australia and the United Kingdom. You were there when the official announcement was made about this triple defence deal between the three nations. Tell us your thoughts about it. You're absolutely right. I mean, this was a really historic moment. And you had that feeling of history. And last time the U.S. actually opened up its nuclear technology for propulsion of submarines was 1958. After a lot of lobbying by Winston Churchill, Congress actually amended the law to allow, again, that very precious, intensely protected technology to be shared with the UK. And and now Australia has joined this very small club in terms of really extending the reach and stealth of its submarine fleet. It obviously, you know, was very impactful to Prime Minister Albanese, who I've known actually for a number of years, and Prime Minister Sunak. I mean, he was just, you could see, you know, how excited he was. I was saying, you know, he could have flown home without a plane. He was so uh, charged up in terms of being there at the event. 18 months ago was when they first announced this security agreement. It then went 18 months into this classified confidential process of negotiation and design. And yesterday is almost 18 months to the day in terms of uh, the original AUKUS announcement. That was the plan to have 18 months of review. And so it's now obviously becoming much more public. And I think the to-do list for all three countries is pretty clear. And I certainly sensed a profound commitment of all three countries in terms of making sure that you know they want this to succeed and they're prepared to execute. Talk to us a little bit, Congressman, if you would, as to what this means for Connecticut and obviously organizations like Electric Boat, who of course build the nation's nuclear submarines. So, I mean, if you look at the three countries, there's no question that the U.S. submarine industrial base 
writ large. I mean, not just in Connecticut, but Virginia and suppliers all over the country. You know, we have the biggest capacity by far. Australia has really no capacity, certainly in the nuclear propulsion sphere. And the British shipyard, which I have visited up in Barrow, is a great yard. But again, they don't have the volume that we have here in the U.S. So again, just to, to lay out where EB and Connecticut fits in, the Short-term plan is to have more rotation of U.S. and U.K. submarines to Australia to, you know, really have much more extended deployments there. They're going to be going to Perth, which is where the Australian submarine base, Sterling, is located. In the meantime, Australia's existing diesel electric fleet, the Collins class, is going to continue to perform their duties. But the shelf life, the whole life of those subs is going to run out in the early 2030s. The new AUKUS boats are really not going to be ready for delivery to Australia in that time frame. So in order to, again, make sure there's no capability gap for the Australian submarine fleet and contemplates having at least three Virginia submarines, U.S.-made submarines sold and acquired by Australia. And if, uh, again, there's a need to continue to add to that fleet to, again, avoid a gap, then the, the plan is to even go further up to five uh, Virginia-class boats. So those are coming straight from the U.S. industrial base. Electric Boat is the general contractor for the Virginia program. It's already delivered 21 Virginia-class boats to the U.S. Navy. There's another two that are going to be delivered this year. But in order to meet our own U.S. Navy requirements, as well as to fill an order like this, there's no question that we are going to have to continue the process of expanding capacity, workforce supply chain facility, which is already happening right now because of the existing program, but it's well understood. And the Biden budget last year invested record amounts of money into those three critical areas, workforce, supply chain, and facility, $750 million last year, which is you know, an unprecedented investment. And the new budget that was just released yesterday doubles down on that with another 700 million of investment in all of those areas. So we are going to see that investment in southeastern Connecticut and in southern New England and in Quonset Point, Rhode Island, because, you know, that's really still the hub of the production for, for Virginia. So the new sub that this program is proposing to do will be designed in the UK up at the Barrow submarine yard. Production of that eventually is, is planned to occur in Adelaide in southern uh, Australia. But again, they're, as I said, their shipyard, their industrial base starting really almost from scratch. And there's no question that Electric Boat is going to have a lot of involvement in terms of their job training programs to skill up for this highly complex really precision advanced manufacturing that goes into submarine construction. And EB, again, will be, I think, really the the sort of mothership or mother sub, to use a bad pun, to really make that a success. We're going to see a lot of Australians in Connecticut over the, the coming years. EB folks are going to be um, spending time in, in Australia to help them with this effort. So there's just no question that this is a, a has going to have a huge ripple effect in Connecticut. And, and I think in a very exciting way that it's going to certainly stabilize the employment situation and in fact grow it to numbers that exceed probably the Cold War era. Let me ask you this question. I know you know a lot about submarines. Obviously, you've been dealing with them for many, many years. One of the points that President Biden was at pains to make very, very clear in the announcement yesterday was that these submarines, although nuclear powered, will not be nuclear armed. Does that mean that they will have to be slightly designed differently? Do you know? Not at all, because the Virginia class 
submarines do not carry nuclear armed missiles. They carry conventional missiles, tomahawks, and torpedoes, which do not have nuclear warheads. But again, I think the president was right to clarify that. Obviously, in the general public, sometimes there's con- a little bit of confusion about what is a nuclear submarine, but this is strictly nuclear-powered submarine. Australia is a treaty signature to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which again, really has a hard restriction in terms of expanding nuclear weapon proliferation, but it has always made a very sharp distinction that nuclear propulsion actually is not a violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And the Albanese government, again, has just, you know, relentless in terms of trying to reinforce that very critical distinction. That means that this initiative will continue to keep them in compliance with the Non-Proliferation Treaty. The world, of course, is constantly changing and the geopolitical situation, of course, we see uh, changing and, and you know, causes concerns for many wherever we are in the world. And I know America has certain concerns about certain other nations. But for America to fight another nation, as you say, into the very small nuclear submarine fold, can you just talk to us a little bit about that? Because America has always been, and quite rightly and understandably so, very cautious about nuclear-powered program and, of course, who potentially could have access to it. Yes. I mean, and I think, you know, there's a a couple of points that I would make in terms of addressing that question, which I think is going to get a lot of discussion, and it should. I think, obviously, live in a democracy, and so is Australia and the UK, and, and people are going to ask a lot of questions. But I think it's important to remember sort of the basics, which is that Australia has an existing submarine fleet. It has for many years. And the fleet that they have, which is diesel electric, is definitely coming to the end of its service life. And for that country, given the security environment that exists in the Indo-Pacific right now, just extending their technology with a diesel electric submarine, which has to surface to recharge its uh, propulsion system, is a highly questionable investment. I mean, it's a big number to, to build a submarine fleet, whether it's diesel or nuclear. But given the fact that China has developed missile technology that makes all surface ships from the big ones like aircraft carriers, even to the smaller ships, um, much more vulnerable today than even 10 years ago. I think the the leadership in Australia, bipartisan leadership, really made the hard decision that it really is a better return on investment for them to invest in a technology that extends the reach and the stealth of their submarines who will not have to surface at all to you know, carry out their missions. Again, it's, it's a little more expensive up front, but the fact of the matter is, is that the Virginia-class submarines, actually, they don't have to be refueled for their entire service life of 33 years, unlike diesel electrics, where we have to switch out and repair technology. So it's a big, it's a very big decision for that country, given, again, their lack of an industrial base. But given the environment that's out there today, I honestly think it's the right call. If you look at Ukraine, just as a quick example, you know, a relatively crude and short-range rockets that Ukraine had, the Neptune missiles, sank the flagship of the Russian Navy, the the Moskva, uh, which is now at the bottom of the Black Sea. That, again, was a a relatively, as I said, low-tech missile. In the Indo-Pacific region right now, China has developed missile technology that has thousands of miles of reach and much more potent and much faster. So I do think that, you know, from a naval standpoint, 
when we're just simply talking about what kind of propulsion system you're going to use, having submarines that don't have to surface and can continue to carry out their mission for much longer distances and much longer duration, I think was the right call. I'm glad you mentioned that uh, about the uh, the length of service of a Virginia class submarine and the fuel, the nuclear fuel, because, again, one of the other things that was pointed out by President Biden during the official announcement was that Australia would not be creating nuclear fuel, as it were. So uh, that, of course, explains that particular comment, which, again, goes to their nuclear nonproliferation status, I assume. That's correct. And, you know, again, one of the key sort of learning curves that U.S. Navy and the and the U.K. Navy are going to be deeply involved with is the whole question of stewardship and as far as, uh, you know, being in this new type of naval propulsion. And, and I think that, you know, again, that there will be some spent fuel at the end of their service life, but, you know, we're talking about very modest amounts. This is nothing like what's generated at commercial nuclear reactors, you know, and I think that, you know, Australia has agreed to, to own that and to take on that responsibility, again, all in compliance with the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Now, again, turning back to the announcement made by President Biden on Monday, apart from what you've just reiterated, sir, that obviously the U.S. will be selling potentially up to five Virginia-class submarines. You also, again, clarified that the U.K. will help Australia design the SSN AUKUS. But uh, it was also stated that U.S. technologies would also be involved, obviously, with the creation of the new SSN AUKUS submarines. Are you able to give us any details about what those potential technologies could be or where they could come from? And again, could that potentially benefit organizations here in Connecticut? Absolutely. So, you know, the fact is today, if you look at all three countries' submarine programs, there's a lot of U.S. technology that goes into the U.K. submarines, the Astute class and the Dreadnought class. Uh, There's, you know, missile tubes that are built in Quonset Point that have been barged over for for the Dreadnought class in the Collins submarines in in Australia. They actually have Virginia-class weapon systems and technology that was installed into their Collins submarines a number of years ago. So there's just no question that, you know, this AUKUS boat, the the one that will be assembled in in Australia, there are going to be U.S. technologies that are are going to be incorporated into those submarines. And again, that actually would be investments that would be outside of Southern New England and Virginia as well. I mean, we're talking about defense contractors all across the country that are involved in radars and sonars and weapon systems, technology, et cetera. So there's going to be a big U.S. footprint in those uh, AUKUS boats when the time comes. Just before we started recording this conversation, sir, you said that figures had been released officially by the Australian government with regards to the amount of money that they will spend on this project, which wasn't uh, available during the actual presidential announcements. Can you tell us a little bit about those figures? Yes. I mean, to cut to the chase, the the figure that was released last night by the Defence Minister, Richard Marles, is that Australia is committed to investing $3 billion into both the US and UK submarine industrial base. Uh, two billion in the U.S., one billion in Great Britain, and my prediction or expectation is that number could grow, you know, over time. Again, it it's for the purpose of number one, achieving expanded capacity, which is already happening with the Biden budgets. But this will, you know, help the the cause even further because again, the the more capacity for construction of submarines and all the supply companies that 
go into that, the better in terms of making sure that that acquisition that's going to take place sometime in the early 2030s, again, will help both countries, won't won't be a zero-sum game where it, it detracts from either the U.S. Navy or puts a delay on the Australian Navy. And they see it as an investment in their own workforce because, because as I said, I think you're going to see Australian shipyard workers embedded in U.S. shipyards shipyard suppliers very soon. I mean, I think this is something that really there's no reason to wait very long to really make that happen. So that $3 billion, again, we're talking about a country whose population is smaller than California. That's real money in terms of, of them honing up for AUKUS. And, and again, the long-term projections in terms of what Australia's commitment is to this is really actually enormous for a country of their size. Bipartisan support. We have a labor government. Prime Minister Alban- Albanese, who was there yesterday, is a member of the Labor Party and the Conservative Liberal Party, as they call themselves in, in Australia. Again, Parliament just a few days ago, the opposition leader made an absolutely ironclad commitment to support the government's effort on this. It's It uh, actually was initially announced when their party was in charge. So I think that you know this is not something that is going to fade away or Australia is going to ghost the program. I mean, they are all in. They're doing it not just with talk, but with real budgets. Just to give us a sense, Congressman, $2 billion is a lot of money to anybody. What does that sort of actually get them? Because can you just give us a bit of a sense of what's the average price of a Virginia class submarine? So right now in uh, 2023 dollars, it's probably closer to about $3.4 billion. You know, they're they're expensive platforms, no question about it. And um, but uh, looking at, you know, where money like that could be spent right now, I think... uh, Again, we we need more facility in Groton. Uh, we just are putting the finishing touches on the new South Yard building, which is for the Columbia program. But I personally feel that you know, looking at where the Virginias are built, it's pretty chock a block in there. And I think you know, there's definitely space and room for expanding that production facility. I also think a lot of that money is probably going to end up in, in supply chain companies. And we have a ton of them in Connecticut that feed into EB. And whether or not it's investments in new advanced manufacturing technology, more space for for construction. And and again, outside of Connecticut, I think you're going to see the same trend that's happening right now. Austal USA, which is an affiliate of Australia's Austal, which is a a big shipyard company in Perth. They actually now uh, in Alabama have switched over to steel fabrication, and they have just really within the last couple of months or so become a a supplier into the Virginia program. So that investment, I think, is going to show up in in lots of places in the U.S. And, um, And again, it's an opportunity for them to get their shipyard workers a lot of the people were going through their metal trades programs, uh, an opportunity to get into a real submarine shipyard sooner rather than later so that they can really get these precision skills, which, uh, you know, again, are the, in my opinion, probably the highest level of excellence because there's no margin for error when you're building a submarine. The Australian Prime Minister, again, during the announcement, stated publicly that Australian submariners are already here in the US receiving training. What can you tell us about that? And and will that training ultimately, if it's not already in Connecticut, will that training be happening in Connecticut as well? As I mentioned earlier, they have a submarine fleet, visited their submarine base. They have a great branch of service there where, you know, really talented sailors and officers. But again, nuclear propulsion is a completely new undertaking for them. In last year's National Defense Authorization Act, an amendment that I sponsored, authorized 
joint training of Australian sailors and officers in the U.S. to really get a head start in terms of getting proficiency for that type of operation. And it's already started. We have the first cohort of Australian naval officers in South Carolina, where we have a moored training ship that, you know, gets them right in there to the reactor room and getting into the, you know, all of the physics and, you know, skills that you need to operate a vessel under power. Again, that, that I think is going to be a continued process coming through uh, South Carolina. The moored training ship, by the way, down there was built in Groton, but Groton submarine base also is you know one of the real places of excellence in terms of nuclear submarine training. We have the sub school there, and a lot of that's aimed more at enlisted sailors. So you go into those training rooms there and you know the educational facility where you see a lot of virtual technology there that helps with navigation and again operation of sonars etc i think you know clearly that's going to be another stopping place for australian navy personnel to come in and, and really you know be ready to go when the time comes for them to accept title to their own australian nuclear powered submarines U.S. Congressman Joe Corn, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Clearly a bright future, at least for the next 10 to 20 years for uh, submarines here in the U.S. Anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, I just would say the spirit in the in, in San Diego, in terms of the, the announcement, there's, I think, a lot of people who have really questioned whether or not this was just too much for Australia to take on or, you know, whether or not the UK and the US really have the capacity to really contribute to this. What I saw was absolutely stacked hands in terms of the commitment. You know, I think no one was being unrealistic. I think everyone was very clear-eyed about the the task ahead, but I just walked away just completely convinced that, you know, this is a program that is not only smart strategically in terms of what's going on in the world today, but also very executable. And it's really exciting to see the state of Connecticut right at the center of it. U.S. Congressman Joe Courtney serving Connecticut's second district. As always, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Since recording that interview with Joe Courtney, Connecticut East this week has learned that the first Virginia-class submarine the Australian government will purchase from the U.S. in the early 2030s will not be a new submarine, but one with around 20 years of service life left. And the total projected cost for Australia's new submarine fleet will set the country back around $368 billion over the next 30 years. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Hospitals' finances in the state were highlighted recently during a presentation by the Connecticut Hospital Association. The CHA report said 2022 was the worst year financially for Connecticut hospitals since the COVID-19 pandemic and highlighted several key areas of concerns from costs driven by inflation to workforce shortages and treating sicker patients for longer as well as negative operating margins. But as Dr. Deirdre Gifford, Executive Director of the Connecticut Office for Health Strategy, explained, they receive every hospital's own audited accounts, and although they are still waiting on hospitals for their 2022 accounts, what they are seeing is a different picture to what's being presented. Non-operating revenues such as investments, $1.14 billion earned by hospitals 
collectively. We also know that the majority of hospitals in 2021 had a positive overall margin and that more hospitals in 2021 than in the previous year had positive overall financial margins. So we do know that entering 2022, hospitals were in fairly good financial shape. Gifford says her office produces a yearly financial stability report, which provides a non-biased picture of every hospital's financial situation in the state. That is based on the hospital's own reporting and on their own audited financial statements. And, you know, we can disagree about policy. We can disagree about the path forward for our healthcare system in Connecticut, but I think we can all agree on a, sort of a common set of data. Gifford says her office accepts that hospitals are being challenged financially in certain areas, but also points out that Connecticut hospitals receive millions of dollars in financial assistance from the Provider Relief Fund, the federal government and the state during the COVID-19 pandemic. The report from the Connecticut Hospital Association was produced by a consultancy firm who stated that figures quoted in that report were supplied to them and were not independently audited. The Connecticut State Dental Association is calling on state legislators to pass a bill to force dental insurance companies to be more transparent about where people's premiums are being spent. Kathleen Geraghty is the executive director of the association and says health insurers have to show by law where patients' premiums are going, but not when it comes to dental insurance. National surveys show that as little as 40% of your insurance that you're paying for dental care is going back to patient care. So the question really is, why is there not parity between your medical insurance and your dental insurance? Both of them are equally important to your overall health. But also the question is, where's the rest of that money going? It's going directly into the insurance company pockets, and that's at the detriment of our patients. Garrity says with the recent COVID pandemic, many people have put off going to the dentist, but have continued to pay their dental insurance premiums either personally or through their employer, which once the year is up are no longer available for patient care and become pure profit for the insurance companies. So the overall health of the body, really your dentist is a key member of that team. And when dental insurance does not afford you the ability to get into the chair often enough, you actually are setting yourself up for what could be a chronic or catastrophic situation. We want to prevent that. Preventative care is always better than ending up in a chronic situation, obviously. Under the Federal Affordable Care Act, at least 80% of medical premiums must go to patient care, and Geraghty says dental insurance premiums should be the same. Last year, 72% of voters in Massachusetts agreed that parity for their dental needs was essential, forcing dental insurers in that state to be more transparent with their premium payments. And as spring break continues for schools and colleges across the state and the nation, the reporters of The College Voice, the official student newspaper of Connecticut College, are looking back at the last month. The college newspaper broke one of the school's biggest stories when the Dean of Equity and Inclusion resigned in protest over a proposed college fundraiser at a Florida club that faces allegations of racism and anti-Semitism that ultimately unearthed many other problems directed at the school's president, Catherine Bergeron. Sam Maidenberg is one of the co-editors of The College Voice and said after they broke the story, they quickly realised how important it was for them to keep the information flowing. And it also was just a really interesting practice of kind of real lifestyle journalism, whereas The College Voice is on a regular basis, bi-weekly, and covers stories that 
usually are a little bit more light throughout the college. So I think this really gave us an interesting opportunity to practice journalism in a different way than we have. Maidenberg says they have written and produced over 50 articles about the ongoing issues at the school and even added a live update blog feature to the newspaper's website. Karcher Christensen is a student and co-editor of the College Voice newspaper and said despite all their reporting on the school's problems, she leaves for spring break wondering what she and everyone will return to towards the end of March. I don't know if I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't know if I'm optimistic or not at this point, but I can say that I am very proud of what we've done. I think SV especially has given students such a powerful force to get behind and along with staff, faculty and alumni support, I think we'll see what happens next. And faculty at Connecticut College have sent their strongest message so far in the continuing dispute at the school to remove the president. In a letter addressed to the Board of Trustees, 149 members of faculty signed a resolution of no confidence in President Catherine Bergeron and again called for her immediate removal from office. Professor Afshan Jafar of the school's sociology department said the current issues about Bergeron and her management style have been known to the Board of Trustees for several years. Faculty morale was at the lowest point that we have ever seen at the college. That was 2017. We expressed concerns about lack of transparency, about her administrative style, which is to ignore the expertise around her and micromanage other deans and other divisions. All of that had been ignored. The last time there was a vote of no confidence in the school's president was back in 2002 by faculty towards school president Claire Gaudiani for financial mismanagement. Gaudiani then went on to resign weeks later. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 